Welcome back to the Fried Egg Podcast. I am excited for today's podcast with Joe Bausch and Mike Serba. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. We discuss these two guys. They're just regular Joes. Restoration efforts at Philadelphia Municipal Course, Cobbs Creek. They set out 11 plus years ago to restore Philadelphia this course to its original glory, which was considered one of the best municipal courses in the country. At this point now, they're finalizing a uh, long-term land lease with the city, which would be up to 70 years, and they would have the intention to have a restoration led by Gil Hans. So this is really an exciting project and just a great project for the public golfer and golf in general and could be a, an awesome template for other communities to follow. Uh, a couple of quick housekeeping things. Brendan Porath and I, uh, who's a regular on this podcast, started a new podcast called The Shotgun Start. This podcast will be a much quicker, shorter format podcast, and it will be on a regular schedule of every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning. This podcast will be geared towards more quick updates and commentary on the latest happenings in golf. There will be short interviews. Um, just last Friday, we had Gil Hans on the podcast for about 12 minutes to talk about Aronimink and a couple other things, um, You know, golf course architecture-based as well as giving an update on the tournament. So it's definitely worth giving it a try. Give it a listen and subscribe on iTunes. It's called The Shotgun Start, and um, it's up on every other podcast platform that I know of now. As a note, I got a lot of people asking, well, does this mean the Fried Egg Podcast is gone? Uh, nothing will change with this podcast. We will continue to do deep dive interviews and discussions on all sorts of different golf topics. So without further ado, here is Joe Bausch and Mike Serba talking about their restoration efforts at Cobbs Creek. Enjoy. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing, playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. It's not to be feared, though. It's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. Joe and Mike, welcome on. Thanks, Andy. Good to be here. Thank you, Andy, for having us. Yeah. So, Mike, I, I think jumping off, I think the place we should start is kind of the history of, of Cobbs Creek and its significance in Philadelphia golf. So um, how did Cobbs Creek get started? Sure. So um, for about 10 years, the Golf Association of Philadelphia uh, had been trying to work with the city of Philadelphia to allocate somewhere in the public park system for a public golf course. And the, it was well behind other cities uh, like New York and Chicago in terms of adapting um, to, a, to a public golf course for a variety of reasons. And eventually, uh, the city acquired land in the northwest corner of the city that became the Cobbs Creek Park. And I guess the Golf Association of Philadelphia folks found an opportunity uh, seeing the property 
And there was a uh, actually a scouting group of Golf Association of Philadelphia folks who included Hugh Wilson uh, of Marion fame. And uh, they identified this property as something that they thought would be, in their words, ideal for a golf course. Uh, that was about 1913. It took another three years of, of or two years actually, of, of wrangling to get the uh, city to agree uh, to utilize this property. So Robert Leslie, who was the president of the Golf Association of Philadelphia at the time, appointed a committee of a number of luminaries uh, from the Philadelphia area that included Hugh Wilson, that included George Crump of Pine Valley, uh, that included Ab Smith, who was at that time a two-time Philadelphia amateur champion, and, and, and two others. These were all men who had experience in designing and construction and maintenance of golf courses at their own clubs. Um, they set to work in, in early 1915, had multiple layouts. They were confined with the fact that the city of Philadelphia would not let them remove any trees. So they had to route the golf course in an exceptionally creative way uh, to derive what at the time it was opened in 1916 was generally accepted as probably the best public golf course in the country. Um, that was evidenced uh, as well very quickly by 1928 um, when the U.S. Publix uh, tournament was held here. Cobbs Creek was an exceptionally difficult golf course from the start. It was built by the same men who designed Marion East and Pine Valley, and they built it with the idea that Philadelphia was really getting their butts kicked in inner city championships, both at um, Chicago and Boston and New York. There was that Leslie Cup, which was named after Mr. Right. Leslie that was involved in it. What was it? It was Boston versus New York versus Philadelphia, and that was with Tillinghast played in it and uh, not Flynn, but Hugh Wilson played in it. That's right? correct, right. Mm -hmm. And and so the, the general idea in, in Philadelphia, spurred by men like Tillinghast writing about it and, and others, it was... One of the major reasons Philadelphia did not compete well is they had no great golf course to develop great players. So the idea became, when they built Cobbs Creek, to build an exceptionally challenging golf course. And because of the natural advantages of the property itself, that was really not a very difficult thing to do. It's uh, this place, having, we just walked it and walked around the original routing, it really embodies, it, it has a lot of the characteristics of the great Philadelphia country clubs, this, you know, rolling, dramatic, brawny topography and some natural creeks and natural land movement that's used so well, and it's, it's something that, you know, in terms of public and municipal golf across the country, there aren't many places that have a great piece of property like this one. Yeah, and, and it's, it's so well utilized. And, and one of the things that is nice to know, given the original intent of the founders, is that it really did develop champions here over time. So in a, a, a um, Italian immigrant by the name of Joe Coble, this is the true Rocky story, only it happened in golf. He came and, and took a job down by the 69th Street station adjacent here in a restaurant and would work all night long so that he could come here first thing in the morning and practice. Uh, Coble developed over time to become the U.S. Publix champion in uh, 1924, and then become a professional and won the Philadelphia, um, the Philadelphia uh, PGA, uh, basically a couple of years later. Um, and also, one of the things that's very noteworthy about the golf course is, unlike most cities in the country, 
Cups Creek was inclusive from the very beginning for all races, uh, all genders, and and uh, that led to the development of people like Charlie Sifford, who when he came here in the 1940s to live with his uncle from North Carolina, was just shocked to find whites and blacks playing together out here. So he naturally gravitated here and, and uh, really learned the game here in his own words. And uh, eventually became the Charlie Sifford, you know, we all know, who, who went on to be a successful uh, tour player. So there's that kind of history here associated with the property. Um, the, the golf course itself hosted uh, three or four what was known National Negro Opens because there were very limited places for them to play, but Cobbs Creek was always a place for uh, that kind of inclusivity. The proximity to the metro area, to, to the city, and it was it was wildly popular when it upon opening, correct? And it, I imagine it had a profound effect on expanding the game and the public game in the city. I mean, this is one of the greatest golf cities in the country, in the world. It did it, you know beyond just the inclusivity? How popular was it? Absolutely. What we've both found with this project when we go around and we meet, particularly older people that are members of private clubs here. The number of them that have come to us and have said, we learned to play golf at Cobbs Creek. If we had a dollar for everyone that told us that, we'd have a couple thousand dollars easily. That's, that's great. At its, at its peak, this golf course was hosting 85,000 people rounds a year. It was similar to what you hear the stories of Bethpage, of people parking their cars at 3 o'clock in the morning. People would begin lining up their bags here at three o'clock in the morning to play on weekends. And, and uh, just the amazing amount of traffic that came through this place over the years was pretty astounding as we learned about it. So the project, I mean, so the golf course is this great golf course. And obviously a lot of golf courses had troubles when, you know, the Great Depression hit and then later the World War II was a really tough time for all types of golf courses. The big change here happened, and Mike is, I've dug up most of these facts. He's better at remembering all the details. But the big change happened in the early 50s when, and we don't know exactly why this happened, but the city of Philadelphia allowed one of these U.S. Army anti-aircraft bases to move from the Upper Darby area, and they moved it onto the golf course. And by moving that onto the golf course, it, it changed one of the golf holes dramatically and they basically had to reconfigure the golf course as a result and that changed the golf course it's still a very good golf course as it is but as you've seen by walking it today and we've shown you the way it used to be the original routing was superior yeah it, it basically the the um, army ended up taking about 15 percent of the property of the original golf course uh, that today, and, and they occupied that land for about six years, between 1953 and by 1958 had moved out. But I, I think the city had, by that time had other priorities than restoring the original golf course. And, you know, it was cleverly reconfigured at the time, but it was significantly narrowed. So as you saw today, there's areas that were a single wide, bold fairway that became two holes. And got, the course kind of got squeezed in over time. And six of the most dramatic holes were negatively affected. And, and as we started looking at this a few years ago, what, what, really, what really triggered some of our interest in this was we had always known that or heard that Hugh Wilson was involved in the design here. And given that 
his his um, you know being a famous Philadelphian as the designer of Marion and having designed very few golf courses in his in his life the idea that understanding what the original routing may have been was always a curiosity to me so at one point I, I sent a query to the um, Hagley Museum in Delaware and they have the Dallin aerial collection of photographs from the 1920s and 1930s. And I asked them, this is back in the fall of 2007, I asked them if they had anything on Cobbs Creek. And, and I didn't get a reply for about six weeks. And I thought, well, you know, maybe they're busy or maybe there's another way I should maybe go down there. And, and um, one day my email pops up uh, 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 eight aerial photos from 1927, I think, to 1939. And... What was indicative in those photographs was that all of the greens that exist today were in existence back then, even in 1928. But it was obvious that the holes were configured differently. And today, what is a driving range on City Line Avenue looked to be part of the original golf course. So at the time, I started a thread on, on Golf Club Atlas uh, just saying, hey, I have these photographs, and this thing looks restorable if anybody ever wanted to do it. And we were kind of young and naive about what that would require or what that would take. And why wouldn't they do it? Because it makes sense. It would be a better golf course. Or, and, and a lot of people like Joe started jumping in and actually doing the legwork and the research associated. So, Joe, maybe you want to talk about some of what you were able to dig up over that time. Yes. I, I think it would also be great. You guys are just, you know, two normal guys with regular jobs that love golf, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was that fall of 2007 on Golf Club Atlas. I had joined that site maybe a few months prior when I got onto the site. And I said, yo, I played Cobbs Creek. And that's how a bunch of people from that site then reached out to me and said, we love that place. And this led to Mike ordering these Dolan aerials. And when he got those, and we're still wondering, how did the course really run? Well, I walked over to our library at Villanova, spoke to one of the research people and said, help me out here. I want to know when Cobbs Creek opened and where can I learn more about it? Right at that time, this America's Historicals new papers had come on board. So they had select newspapers, particularly the Philadelphia Inquirer, all the way up to 1922 that I could search electronically. And one night I start searching and there it is, like 1915, Philadelphia Inquirer has got a picture showing you what the original routing was. And we were able to connect the dots and then further research when I started doing it, learning who all these important people were that made this project happen. Yeah, and it was it was really a, a very neat iterative process because we watched this thing unfold in real time, kind of as the research was done, and, and it got posted to Golf Club Atlas. So one fact and overturning one stone would, you know, five other lizards would scurry out that would be other trails to to dig up, and and you know who, the people involved. So so really, it was a design by committee is, is what we learned, and and the committee was just so we kind of lay it out. It was Hugh Wilson. It was George Crump of Pine Valley. It was uh, Ab Smith, who was a two-time Philadelphia amateur champion. It was George Clotter, who had done a lot of work with Tillinghast at Aronimink. It was Franklin Meehan, whose family really was responsible for the Fairmount Park system in the city of Philadelphia and who was an agronomy expert. Tillinghast kind of spurring this on in the newspaper. And then while the course was being built, people like George Thomas later wrote that he learned a lot as an architect from Hugh Wilson watching him build the city course at Philadelphia. 
people like Walter Travis came here because they were working with George Crump over at Pine Valley and would come here and offer suggestions. So it was really this melting pot of ideas of all these people we now know as kind of giants in the architectural history of the game in Philadelphia. I, I think that's the, one of the most fascinating things about this is, is something in America that you know, is often complained about with, with you know the majority of golfers is how inaccessible so much of the great architecture and how hard it is to see the great work from a Tillinghast, a Flynn, or a, a you know Crump, or a Hugh Wilson, or Walter Travis. Most of their great golf courses are, are exclusive and not available. And here at, at Cobbs Creek is an example of a golf course where you can come see you know the great architecture uh, of the, of that time and some of the greatest architecture uh, architects that have ever lived. Sure, and, Andy, and you referred to um, you know William Flynn later, and and at the time Flynn was the superintendent at Marion under you know Hugh Wilson as the green super as the uh, green chairman, and and Hugh Wilson or. Joe's research also indicated that, you know, William Flynn is the one who built out all the greens here. And, you know, you had noted as we walked the golf course that his use of landforms in, in directing angles and creating interesting uh, predicaments uh, is really in evidence out there. So you guys have done all this fact-finding. You know, you're uncovering all this information about the golf course. How did the restoration process work with starting to begin to, a conversation with the city? What, what did, you know, kind of what were the first steps and the different things that went into that portion of the project? I'll maybe begin this and then Mike can take it from there. Basically, uh, not just doing some electronic searches from a database, but also at the Villanova Library, they showed me all these microfilm reels for the Philadelphia Public Ledger, which was one of the biggest newspapers in the country. And I spent many weekends just going through issue after issue, finding anything I could on Cobbs Creek and learning about this. This then learned, turned to going down to the Free Library of Philadelphia and spending many weekends there to where I gathered so much data on Cobbs and little tentacles that came from that sharing these with Mike and others, Mike then basically said, we need to put this together just in something that's organized and who knows what comes of it. And I'll let him go from there. Yeah. So my, my background in, in, in is in journalism originally. And so I, I just looked at this, all these stories Joe was uncovering and I thought, this really needs to be put together in some kind of narrative form that tells chronologically the history. Even going back to the late 1890s at the first attempts of Golf Association of Philadelphia to get the city to uh, you know, create or allocate land for a golf course. So there was all this, the story really told itself through this series of articles going from, I say, 1890s to the frustration of the early 1910s where people like Tillinghast would say, wrote, uh, you know, let us, let, let us uh, be, uh, I forget what the exact term was, but let us build a, a course for men of slender purses, I think was his uh, analogy, right? So that they can be men indeed. Was, you know, he was a very uh, florid writer and, and uh, so. Great way with words. Right. So, um, I thought if we, if I can just put a narrative around all this stuff that Joe has found and we can get this into the hands of some people, why wouldn't they do this was our somewhat naive thought, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's all of this is recoverable and it really shouldn't be a lot of money. 
And what what year about is this? So so when when I started putting the book together, it was two thousand seven, mm-hmm. and then in two thousand eight, in early two thousand eight, a local sports writer here, Joe Logan. Uh, was able to get us an audience uh, with um, the Fairmount Park Commission at the time who was running the golf course. And we went and we presented our ideas uh, to them at that time. And the, the, Joe, Joe thought we'd be thrown out of the meeting room in about five minutes. And when that didn't happen, it led to some encouragement of, we were basically told, if you guys raise the money to do it, we don't really have any specific objections to it at this time. Mm-hmm. Well, that that was uh, encouraging, but Joe and I are both public golfers. We are both public golfers forever. We both have day jobs. This is not what we do, right? Yeah. And, and, and we don't run in the circles of people who have the investment money to do that kind of thing. So that's when I started putting together this book over that time period. And we, we ended up presenting to the golf course management company at that time, our idea, uh, shortly after that. And, and we also, at that time, I, got, I had Jim Wagner and, and, and Gil Hans both come out here, Jim first, uh, because Jim, Jim I've known for a number of years, and Gil as well. And, and Jim is a definitely a guy who will tell you if you're full of it. And, and I had no qualms. I, I thought, all right, we all think we see the value here. Maybe I can have him meet us out here and we'll walk around and, and see what he thinks. And, you know, Jim wasn't real, um, he was a little hesitant to offer an opinion as we're going. And I'm getting a little more nervous. And then we start walking up this hill of the original sixth hole. And he utters kind of the first evaluation of what he's seeing. And he says, it's a little like 18 at Riviera. So I'm thinking at that point, well, maybe, you know, we're, we're okay in, in, here. In, in 18 at Riviera, Riviera designed by George Thomas, yes. a guy that was involved with this project, which is fascinating. Right. So we, you know, we continue on through the course. And later on, I said, we want, we're walking up the original 11th hole, which is today 15 or the latter half of the hole is. And, and, and I said, Jim, are we, are we nuts? And he said, mm, no, nah, you guys aren't nuts. So I thought that was that was as good as it was going to get, right, with Jim. And we later brought Gil out here, and he Gil had done work pro bono. Um, you know, the, the course has had a historic problem with some uh, the creek, Cobb's Creek running through here has led to some flooding uh, issues over time, and parts of the third and fourth greens had washed away. And Gil would come out here on his tractor and just rebuild them without just simply for the good of the game. So from our perspective. Gil and Jim always had right of first refusal on anything that was ever done here. Um, we, we, we went to the management company and, and some of the executives of that company and presented this great history and did a PowerPoint slide in the old Cops Creek Clubhouse that sadly burned down about two winters ago. And, and, and we thought, wow, we really nailed it. And we got kind of from them like, well, if you want to maybe kind of try to build the TPC of Cops Creek out here, you know, maybe we'd be interested in doing something like that. Well, that's not what our intent was, <laughs> right? So, so yeah, that wouldn't be the the letters I would choose for Cobb's Creek. Right, right. So, so I remember being in the parking lot afterward, and Jim Wagner comes up to me, and I'm I'm very discouraged. I'm thinking that's it. This this is dead, and he says, basically, screw these guys. He says, you know, like, find somebody who shares your vision and, and has money and is willing to fund it. Well, little do we know at the time, 
there was some un under things going on where that winter, um, or maybe it was the next winter, but our book got in the hands of, of the CEO of the management company. And he was a longtime friend of a fellow named Chris Lang, who's a longtime uh, great amateur player, probably along with Jay Siegel, the two best amateurs to come out of Philadelphia in the last 50 years. He's played in multiple senior opens, won the Travis Cup. And, and we didn't know Chris, but Chris ran in circles that we don't run in. Right, so so that was a good thing. Well, anyway, Peter Hill was playing golf with with Chris Lang in Florida at a place called the Hideout, and they they had been roommates at Georgetown. And uh, Peter Hill mentioned to Chris, "Hey, have you ever uh, you ever know those guys who were trying to do something at Cobb's Creek?" And gave Chris a copy of our book. Um, we met Chris a couple weeks later in the in the old clubhouse, and and Chris said, he said, "So I I got this book and I start reading it." And I read the whole thing over two nights, and I think, we got to do this. So he got inspired at that time. And, you know, we sat down and started talking about uh, potential funding. This is, again, now nine, ten years ago. And so we're thinking, okay, if we get funding, this, the rest of this should be very easy to do. Not so much. So... Uh, I think I think we've had multiple ups and downs through multiple administrations in Philadelphia. Um, even even those administrations who were all proponents of it, somehow we never had any ability to grease the skids of progress, or or know how to operate the mechanisms. So even Chris and his and his. Uh, group, you know, it, I think it's, it was hard to penetrate what the politics are in the city of Philadelphia and how to make that happen. I imagine with it crossing over, so you know, just for a timeline sense, how many years ago was it from when you had kind of everything kind of in place to where we are today? Eight or nine, probably eight or nine years. Yes. <laughs> was there any moments that stick out where like you were really just gutted at the you know the the, the most gutted or was it after that T the meeting where they suggested maybe if it was the TPC yeah so I, I think I think there were this has been an emotional roller coaster at all kind of various times we thought at times that wow if, if the city doesn't do this in conjunction with the 2013 US Open at Marion, and see the value in that convergence of activity, then we're probably never going to happen. But at that time, I mean, the Golf Channel, Macanella did a feature on us during that U.S. Open, and we thought that could spur people to see this and get get excited about doing it. And then it just... We just found that there is a, a long process that you have to go through to make a change like this in the city of Philadelphia, and that's understandable. And it took quite a while, and we got more people on board, in particular one person that has really made this happen. And um, yeah, we we don't we may you know he's he's sort of staying under the radar right now, but uh, we yeah. we got a very key person in place that had the doggedness, the persistence, and the knowledge to know how to work the dealings in the city of Philadelphia. Okay, yeah. so, you know, it's great news, but it was about a month and a half ago, or two months ago. I'm losing track of Yeah, time. in June. Yeah, June. June. So two, three months ago now. Man, time's flying. Yeah. Um, what are the future plans at, and the t kind of the timeline around them? 
So, so um, Gil and Jim years ago had uh, had put together a master plan pro bono. Um, they also worked with a uh, group who does waterway restoration and uh, called land studies and d designing basically a one f down to the one foot level plan, detailed plan of how to converge the creek restoration plan with the golf course restoration plan. And, and again, have done all of that work pro bono. So that, that was great. And we've had that plan in place for a number of years. They also looked at the second 18-hole golf course on the property. And there's some great landforms up on the other end. And Jim was, I remember, I, I was so surprised because that golf course is not of any great repute, right? And when we first took Jim up there, he was just eyes wide open and saying, this is amazing out here. And he was as excited for that part of the property as this. So, but there's also low-lying holes on that that really are best probably turned back to uh, wetlands. And, and they came up with what was a, you know, a restoration of the original 18-hole golf course, as well as taking that great land and utilizing that in an original nine-hole design, but then letting some of the rest of it go back to nature or, or help with the water mitigation issues around the property. So that plan has been in place and largely unchanged for a while, I'm sure as we get into the detailed permitting, um, there you know there may be some revisions to that. But really, the next steps now are I, I think you know there's the group who are and we're not part of thankfully because we just muck it up. But there's the you know the group that's negotiating those final details of the lease with the city that that they're getting the final I's and T's uh, done, and and then the the really the permitting process would begin. Um, you know, we would like to see this today. I joke with people, having, you know, just hit my 60th birthday that I'm hoping to play those original golf holes while I can still hit the ball 150 yards. But, um, you know, I, I think that uh, um, I, I think things are now on the on the progress side right i think i think this lease will get done shortly i think that uh, the permitting process there's already been a lot of groundwork happening uh to get that completed um you know i don't know what the construction timetable would look like uh from gill and jim's perspective uh whether they do it in stages whether they do it all at once I, I, again that's yeah. going to be you know their call um i'm i'm hoping i'm hoping to be able to uh play here in I don't know, two years, but that's just my feel of things. I play here under the, you know, re revision of the golf course. Um, do you have, do you, what's your thought on that, Joe? We've waited 11 years, so if it's two, three, four years to make this happen and to get it done properly, I'm willing to wait. Yeah. Uh, with it, you know, going into this plan, did you guys put together, you know, financials? You, you guys formed a nonprofit, Friends of Cobb Creek, Cobb's Creek. Um, did, how, did you go into the financials to really, and did you have help to figure out how you could make everything work after it, the, you know, the money spent, the restorations done, you have, you know, the fee structure, how did that all work? So, um, so two, there's two different entities, right? The first entity was just our informal group called Friends at Cobbs Creek, and we, we basically put up a website just to share information about the project. Joe, Joe uh, created that website uh, with uh, help from uh, Matt Frey, and, and uh, that, that site was really just to keep 
the public informed and to, and to continue to generate interest and potentially you know, financial help or any, any of those types of things. There's also a foundation, though, that's been put together, uh, 5013 or 503C, whatever the terminology <laughs> is, by the lawyers, right? Yeah. And, and the lawyers are, are friends of Chris and the other fellow who we mentioned who has a lot of in with the city. And, and you know, that was to structure this in a way that took, you know, Gill and Jim's construction budget, figured out what it would take to maintain that in perpetuity. And, and the deal is structured in such a way where it was a long-term lease with the idea that um, if if we didn't have control of the monies that were generated to go back into the golf course, if they were just going back to the city, to the general fund, uh, this would not be a workable situation. So the city basically agreed to lease the property to the to the foundation, which is created uh, for for a dollar with no money coming back in. So the city still retains ownership of the almost 400 acres that are out here with the idea that the group is on the hook to put in $20 million in capital investments, also on the hook for educational opportunities, for uh, golf opportunities, for in inner city residents, but also um, the uh, first tee programs. There's some discussion. The Golf Association of Philadelphia may move their headquarters here. That could create a synergy for other youth programs. Um, we've talked to some of the universities. You know, Joe is at Villanova. There seems to be interest in mentoring programs and other things that could be done out of the facility. And so uh, I, think, I think the opportunities for those kind of things, walking trails, uh, greater integration with the community are, are really would benefit the city and we eventually after an hour and a half grilling in one subcommittee meeting we eventually com <laughs> convinced them of that uh, vision in a way that we they saw the opportunities for more of a regional revival kind of stemming from this in an organic way than any direct payback to the city in terms of dollars from the golf operation I mean, bringing it back, making it a hub for the community, which was, it seems like, you know, from all the writings, the original intent really for the city of Philadelphia, for the residents, and uh, and making it just a great place to spend time, whether you're playing or not, it sounds like. Right. So um, in terms of, you, you've referenced the book a little bit. Is there a way that people can get the book? Is it going to the website or? The book is available online electronically they can read it at uh pete trenum's website so mm -hmm. i we'll think put it's, a link maybe in the we bio. can put a link so it an early version of the tome as we call it because it's nearly 400 pages now <laughs> you can read online but if someone wants a more recent version of that they can go to the friends of cobb street golf course website contact me and i can make it happen mm -hmm. Right. And, and uh, you know, my wife is, is long-suffering, and, and when I wrote that book, put that together over the winter, it kept growing. I told Joe, he has to stop doing research, or I'm going to need, a, like, a marital attorney, because I, have to, I had to keep adding to it. I think we're in, like, the 12th revision now, and, like you say, up to about 400 pages of, it's all great stuff, and, and you know, when, when it's uncovered, it's like, oh, man, we got to put this back in. I need another revision. But we, we, we did it. We, we also created the book without a sale price. Yeah. And I couldn't sell it anyway because all these articles, I never sourced them properly yeah. from a, you know, from a, um, uh, 
term, uh, tr you know, trademark or, or what the source was. Because I just put it together. Um, one, one of the uh, USGA archivists, when he was shown the book, said, oh, my God, this is awesome, but it's like a, a trademark attorney's nightmare. So we never sold it. We just, we just get our own <laughs> copies made out of our own pocket and, and, and give it out. So, you know, the struggles of municipal golfer around the country, you know, there's struggles, there's success stories. This is a success story in the making. And I get, I get a lot of emails from people that are asking, you know, and laying out situations at their municipal level, their golf course that might be closing. In terms of, you know, guys, two guys that have been through, you know, the whole process, what would be your advice to somebody that's looking at, you know, their municipal or public course and, and knowing that it might be something special from another time or could be something more, how to go about the process, where to start really, and, and how to get to a stage where you're at now? Well, I think the history part is important. Right? If you have to sell this to some people, you need to have something good to tell them. And we've had that in this project. There's so many good stories associated with this. And I think that's important. And I've had many people contact me about having similar ideas that they have in various cities. And, you know, I try to tell them, wow, are you, are you ready for a long haul? Right. And I, I think that's, I think that's true. And I, I think there may be some things that are, that were unique to this facility here in terms of how good the golf course was originally and how great the history was originally that helped this project along but what i would say on a practical level is the cities aren't going to do it because they don't have the money and they have bigger priorities so the only way effectively to do this in my mind is a model where there is an interested group from a public who can create a nonprofit who can get funding from you know benefactors and donors who are interested in you know, either creating a legacy or, or, or preserving the golf course in a good way in perpetuity and and then working with the city in a kind of arrangement that we have uh, where, where um, you know, th there is that it's a public-private partnership is really what it comes down to. Um, and and I, think, I think, moreover, if we talk about the future of golf, you know, over the last 20 years, there's been all these great, resort places built out in the middle of nowhere kind of in private clubs and resorts right starting with like a sand hills model out in the middle of nebraska somewhere or abandoned dunes up on the coastline of oregon that's not what's going to save golf in the long term if golf is to thrive it has to reach where the population centers are and where the groups that have historically not had access to golf live right and i'm talking ethnic groups i'm talking nationalities i'm talking racial groups and Cities, so golf needs to exist where the population centers are. And, and you know, it's had that history of the creation of municipal golf courses. It's had that history of so many of them being created during the Great Depression by WPA labor and civilian conservation core work and other things. And those, those still by and large exist i kind of pride myself on when i go to a new city finding the oldest public golf course around or muni muni around and, and playing them and i've played some pretty interesting places but um that that is really where i think golf needs to regenerate again mm -hmm. i i completely agree and i think 
the founding of this with it centered around this competitive golf landscape and the you know wanting to create championship golfers i talk about this all the time is you know the the gap is a is an example of an organization that really gets it when they play championships they play the greatest courses in the city and the courses it's in their dna to allow these championships to happen and and for kids it's so important in developing the young golfers if you you know the great golfers come like having exposure to great golf is a is a great is a way for them to to get better and improve because it forces them to hit shots you know you walk around here and you see shots that you really know how have to know how to play the game well to hit, to pull off and it teaches these kids and then when they get into their you know these first USGA championships or whatever it may be they're better prepared for what they might see at that next level and then even just from the interest level how interesting this golf is for a beginner and the different challenges and the heroic things they have to come overcome the decisions of whether to play the safe line or take the advantage and whether they know it you know or not they consciously that they have to make these decisions it, it creates better golfers that understand and appreciate the game more yeah I, I would I would say two things in that regard first you know growing up as a lower middle income uh, person myself if I didn't have exposure to reasonable public golf I hesitate to know where my life would have been if all the time I spent on golf courses over my life was spent in other endeavors, right? I don't think it would have been a good outcome. Uh, the second thing, though, is that I first had the opportunity to play here in 1981. I was living across the street with my roommate from college, and I was parking cars at, at the General Wayne Inn as a valet parker. And uh, I, I came out here to play, and immediately, even though you could tell it had been lost something over the years. You could kind of just feel the ghosts out here, right? So this place has so much aura and history. And, and it's, I, I, I tell people when I come out here for a walk, I take 20 years off my life instantly because I never get tired of walking around here and showing people things. It's just such an amazing place. To note, this morning it's about 57 degrees. <laughs> And it was a steady rainfall, and I, I, I didn't feel cold at all. I didn't. I don't even have pants. <laughs> you know, the weather changed dramatically from the week, but it, I can a testament. Like I, I've been tired because I've been walking all these golf courses, and I, I felt like a kid out there today. I, I, I was running. I felt like I was running up the hills. <laughs> um, you guys are both very well documented travelers, and you see a lot of golf courses at many different levels of of uh conditioning what if you were going to put together five gems whether they're in philly or outside of philly that are available to the public that people should go see when they're in a city or in the area you know what are your kind of five hidden gems each of you well we want to stay sort of in the philadelphia area public courses what do you want to do i'm going to go further out because i maybe do three in philly or two in philly area outside of Cobbs and then three anywhere okay wow we we get asked this a lot and I usually don't answer this because I don't want to offend people by what I choose <laughs> what do we um, so, I would maybe I say this to say some people say how did you get into golf course architecture because I wasn't into it it was in 2007 I went out and played Innisgrown, which is about an hour away outside of Philly Gil Hans's first golf course, I think, and 
it had become, was private and then things went sour and it became public and I played Innisgrown and that was when I had this aha moment. I'm like, wow, this has some really edgy architecture. So one of my two courses in this area public, I would choose Innisgrown. Sure. I, I, and, um, you know, there, there's some really good public courses but I and, and some built in more modern times. But I, I always uh, like the traditional stuff, right? Yeah. So I like uh, uh, Jeffersonville, which had a restoration uh, a few years ago. I think it's just a, a great place to play where, you know, everybody from, uh, you know, little old lady can, can roll the ball along the holes, the old Donald Ross course to, to uh, you know, and, it can, and yet the greens are so uniquely interesting that they can challenge, you know, the best players. Um, it's a piece of property out in Berks County um, that you were at. Uh, Galen Hall is another just just fascinating golf course to play. Berkeley um, maybe doesn't have the, the the fine finish, but just the use of the land out there is is terrific. Um, Manor so. out there, Andy, which you visited, which doesn't really reach anybody's radar around here, but it's an old course designed by an architect that probably is underappreciated alex finlay yeah. and and you saw it it's it's pretty darn good that, that that place has stuff that you can't see anywhere else and that's that's what i think is so fascinating about these golf courses and particularly you know you see it a little bit more with the older courses than the courses that were built you know the, during the mass production time these courses like so that Galen Hall is a perfect example. Um, uh, Manor is another example. Like Galen Hall has stuff that you can't see anywhere else. Manor has stuff that you can't see anywhere else. I mean, the start of Manor is good uphill par four to like a punch full green with this big mound, and you're like, oh, this is a pretty cool. <laughs> like that's right. the right way to start. Right. You know, Galen Hall's second hole, I mean, cascades down this like hundred foot drop to a par five. I mean, it's just something that and, would never get built. And playing across a public road. Yes, right. yes, <laughs> multiple times you play across roads out there. Yeah. It's uh, so so. Even just tying that back to here, right? So I think the architects then had the advantage and disadvantage of they didn't have large earth moving equipment. So if you were going to do a routing, you had to confront what was there. So today's, you know, as we walk the golf course today and the first, you know, five holes up along the creek, and then we figure out, well, we're at the low point of the property. We probably need to get up on that hill somewhere. So what do they do? They built what was the audacious at the time sixth hole, which had an 80 foot climb from the driving from the T area up to the fairway. And, and that was the whole, you know, interestingly, Jim Wagner tied back to uh, the 18th at Riviera uh, as we did the initial walk around here. So those guys weren't afraid to be audacious and they weren't afraid to be bold and they weren't afraid to, to, uh, to call on the golfer to create, to have a difficult shot. Fairness was not in their vocabulary, mm -hmm. right? And when you think back to the fact that they were playing golf with hickory shafted clubs at that time when this course was built, it's just an unimaginable challenge. That's, I mean, fairness is one of the worst terms in golf, I think. It, it just, it's a, the beauty why golf is so great is for Tiger Woods as maddeningly as frustrated about golf 
as the person that just learned how to play yesterday. Like that is the beauty and the and essentially the ethos of golf and what makes everybody come back and come back. If everything was fair and it was easy, nobody would play the game. Like the right. game, the, the the mystique of the game is that you always feel like you left shots out there, or you're thinking about that one time, that one shot that you you know if I could just do over this. Like how many times have somebody told you, you know, I shot 78, but it it should have been 74. <laughs> you know, could have easily been that, or yeah. it could have. You know, I shot 91, but I it should have been 85. I even said that about Tiger watching him on television yesterday. I said he should have had 30 on that front nine. <laughs> exactly. Instead of 35. I mean, that yeah. is the beauty of golf is these right. micro moments. And this this place, is it's just full of that drama and that, you know, if you're a first-time player walking around, I mean, I was so excited to climb the hill and see what was over that hill. And that, you know, the, you know, the opposition of blind shots, you know, in, in the modern era of architecture that happened is like you know that that climbing that unknowing of where it is is like one of the best feelings in golf yeah golf golf at its best should be about adventure and discovery mm -hmm. right and and discovery is is really oh i didn't realize if i hit it over here and maybe challenge that even though it's a little more dangerous then my next shot is is so much more i have such a more advantageous angle but the adventure part of it is still you know the, the, this is still a game where guys were shepherds taking their you know going down to the water and hitting a rock or whatever they hit originally along the way and trying to get it you know trying to defeat nature in whatever nature was that day right whether it was wind or rain or or whatever and 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 i think we've i think we've over homogenized golf in the effort to create purely you know purely beautiful vistas and pure maintenance conditions where every blade of grass is uniform and even the roughs are uniform i think the unpredictability and venture of golf is what is part of the natural inherent uh attraction of the game and and i i think in as as golf progresses i, I i'm sensing a trend maybe back toward a more natural way of maintaining golf courses water restrictions and other things are going to force some of those issues over time and and I think you know I know Gil and Jim are very cognizant of those things, and I I think what I'd like to see here over time is really gravity golf. You know, using all these interesting landforms in a way that the ball will roll, the ball's round for a reason, right? And and so uh, I I think there's such opportunity out here. I get excited all the time. I think about it. So uh, I'm not gonna let you guys off the hook. All right. We need we need three more three more gems, non Philly gems. Okay, and and public, public. Yeah, of course. I'll I'll, I'll start uh, Mount Pleasant in Baltimore, um, Audubon Park in New Orleans, um, oh, I'm gonna. There's, there's, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot. Huh? <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> yeah, those those jump out. Um, it's a place called Bonneville in the hills, uh, foothills outside of Salt Lake City. Um, they're all places that I would, you know, walk on and sling a bag over my shoulder and want to come off 18 green, go back to the first tee. Yeah. Tough question. I haven't played as many courses as Mike, although I'm getting there. Mike's over 1,100 now. I'm probably about 800. I grew up in Indiana. 
and didn't get to play this course until about five years ago, but the Donald Ross course at French Lick is a resort, but the price tag actually isn't all that bad. It's probably 80, 90 bucks. It's absolutely outstanding. So if anyone's really wanting to see Donald Ross, I think at his best, which is taking a small piece of property and making it work, it's just excellent. Then maybe go modern and give some love to uh, Gil Hance. The black course at Stream Song is very aggressive. It's just hard to explain what's going on there, but I have a somewhat unusual way of judging golf courses in that I really love a golf course when after you hit the ball, it's rolling on the ground a long time. Yeah. And the way that course is presented and um, designed, it really, you can take advantage of the ground game. That's outstanding. Um, what are we going to do here? Um, well, my friend uh, Matt Fry is sitting by here. Matt, you're going gonna to give me a third? What should it be? Let's let Matt put one in. Third course outside of Philly. Can I pick a defunct course? Yeah. Uh, Tallgrass out on Long Island, public golf course by Gil Hans, was wonderful. And I'm still very bummed that that place has since been shuttered in the past year or so. Um, but that's like Joe was saying. Um, when we played it, it was firm and fast, and you could let that ball run and roll out, and uh, it was just a blast. Yeah, I'm gonna get, I, mean, I was up in Boston this summer. I'm going to give a shout-out to two places that had just fantastic uh, restorations of, of two uh, public golf courses, right? So there's George Wright, which was the, the real brawny uh, Donald Ross golf course. But equally interesting is Franklin Park, which is just about 6,000 yards maybe, and just has some of the neatest, most original golf holes you've ever seen, and and recent efforts to get both of those golf courses back in a very good presentation has has just made them uh, joyful to play. I I, I I joke to people that I'm probably the only person in history to ever play the Myopia Hunt Club and George Wright on the same day, but I also <laughs> joke to people Come that on, I Tom. say. <laughs> but I also joke with people, and I say I'm probably the only person to ever play my Opie Hunt Club while staying at the Super 8 in Brockton. But <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, the, uh, I, I read a really good – Brad Klein just wrote an article about uh, Franklin Park and, uh, and George Wright on Golf Advisor, um, and it, Mark Mundrum did the work there. And yeah. I've heard nothing but really great things about those two places. Terrific. So um, – I, I got to ask, I've, I was just thinking about this, is you guys go at this for 11 years. You know, you get the news that it's, it's passed. You finally cleared the hump. What, what did you do to celebrate? Oh, we got on the school kill and sat in traffic for about an hour and a half, <laughs> <laughs> strangely enough. I mean, did you get in the car and, like, was there just, like, a, you like, you know, like, is there any kind of celebratory reaction? Where yes, just, yes, was probably um, somewhat reserved because it's just been a long process and just getting it through the city council, you know, uh, more stuff had to happen than it has. But, yeah, we've we've celebrated. We, we hope to have a, sort of a bigger event here sometime so, soon. So I have, an, I, have, I have a neat picture Joe found, uh, which is um, – Hugh Wilson and a few of the other luminaries, Ab Smith and 
looking at properties uh, for the city of Philadelphia to find a golf course, and they're all wearing these bowler hats. So my deal is I went out and got a bowler hat. And, and at the time the actual construction starts, and I watched them start uh, moving bulldozers down through where the driving range is today, the bowler is going on. And, and I think some champagne will be uh, opened at that time. Un until that moment, I'm still in that reserve of pinch me when it happens. That's great. Um, so we'll put in the, I know there's an exhaustive thread on Golf Club Atlas. So in a couple, probably I'll put those links in there. Um, and then, you know, they, you got your website that people can find more about. Is there any other resources, anything else that you suggest for people that might want to learn more about everything that's happened outside of the book? So one of the things that's going to get created is a is a website particular to the project, mm -hmm. and it's really going to be driven to people who want to help contribute financially and mm -hmm. other things, but also being the, I, I'll say, a more controlled source of information of what the you know what the foundation wants to be able to share with the public around the around the um, project, but for anything on the history or how we got to this point or the. Or the um, golf course itself, the architecture. Uh, you know, our friends at Cobbs Creek site still exists, and and we certainly want to uh, link out to that. And we we enjoy the interchange uh, with folks there too. And I would have to give a plug, but there's no advertising, nothing. But in the process of doing on this research on Cobbs Creek, and I started talking to various people that I got to know, they started asking me about, well, did you find anything? Like when I was talking to Tom Paul. A legend around this area ever see anything on you know golf mills and it's like I think I have and then so 10 years ago basically anything on a Philadelphia golf yeah. on microfilm I would scan it so I have that is tens and thousands resource. and now I'm beginning to organize that and put it out into what's known as the Bausch archives which is on the myphillygolf.com site mm -hmm. and I think that is an exceptional site for anyone that wants to learn more about history of golf in the city of Philadelphia. I, I will definitely link out to that. Your archives are unbelievable. And uh, I'm, uh, I, I personally have looked through hundreds of courses on, on his photo archive. Joe's got photo archives and tours what, what's, of hundreds of archives. Yeah, and what's, what's, what's been great, actually, is that Joe's research around clubs like, even the private clubs like Marion and Pine Valley, have really solidified what the history of those clubs actually was from an architectural standpoint and really provided the documentation of the real time. I mean, Tillinghast wrote this series of articles that Joe found during the construction of Pine Valley originally that really just lay out so much information that sometimes I think what happened in a lot of these clubs is and, and courses is information just got lost over time or word of mouth kind of uh, legends just sprung up that may or may not have been true. But to actually read the story in real time, Joe's site is invaluable for that type of information. That's great. So we, we got to do overrated, underrated, and then we're out of here. All right. All right. Philadelphia golf. This is going to be a layup. <laughs> no. Underrated. Underrated. Um, professional golf, like the PGA Tour. Um, it's about where it, where it is. I, I don't think it's underrated or overrated. I, I think it's necessary to generate interest in the game. I, I don't like where some of it has gone um, in terms of 
technology and other things, but yeah. Yeah, I will echo those thoughts. I don't, I, I love professional golf. My wife knows if uh, I could have a cable channel, all I really watch is the golf channel. That's just about it. I'll watch any event on there. So uh, yeah, there's issues with professional golf. I don't know if anyone's going to finally tackle sort of the ball and maybe roll back the ball or have a have a professional golf ball. Yeah. Right. And then I think you could not have to worry about maybe modifying some of these grand old courses, mm-hmm. maybe even one around here that, you know, you might say has been, you know, modified to, you know, deal with professional golf. And I'm not so certain that that is the best for members. Yeah. It's uh, the one that they're playing this week is, you know, was restored for members you know, and very faithful to what originally was there. And, and we're seeing that it's just, you know, it's one of the great championship courses of all time, you know, falling by the wayside. And it's, it's a, it's a fascinating topic. And, uh, obviously one, I, I think we're all, we're, we're all sitting on one side of the fence very far over here. So <laughs> it's important to know that we're probably about the, as far on one end of the spectrum as we could get. Right. But, uh, something the final, we're going to go final overrated, underrated. I've, I've, uh, I've developed a, a massive affinity for this design feature and it's kind of my flavor of the month where I just get obsessed with something. What do you guys think? Overrated, underrated ditches. <laughs> On a golf course. Oh, I think... Um, dug ditches. Uh, uh, underrated. Some don't maybe Un- just look, think the word maybe kind of sounds elementary, Un- but look underrated. at... Underrated. Yeah, look at, look at Oakmont. Oakmont, yeah. Look how perfect, well perfect Oakmont example. uses ditches. Right. And, and, and I grew up on a lot of public courses where there wasn't a lot of effort meant to hide how they got water off of the golf course property. So ditches, right? They would be, they would be out there in evidence and you'd get the, you know, you get your local rule on your scorecard that would either define them as a hazard or something else. But yeah, uh, ditches are, are necessary for water and, and they're, cool for a golf course feature if properly done yeah yeah i think they got we got change the name i'm gonna have to come up with a new name that sounds very Fox eloquent Wolf. and yeah <laughs> you know so yeah, I, I like the wash idea but i we got i'm gonna think i'm gonna think about a, a name we can change the name to because like oakmont the last u.s open they had but they got like five inches of rain and they played the next day and yeah. i don't i don't remember i can't remember if the ball was played up or down it might have been played up in just the fairway, but I mean, five it, it, those ditches just went to work when that rain came down. Right, and it's uh, any place that's got some ma- major drainage problems, you got to be looking at ditches because they can be really cool too. Yep, the strategy there, you got a strategic aspect of it. But um, guys, I, I thank you so much, a for coming on the podcast, sharing the story, but more importantly, the eleven years of like blood, sweat, and tears into hopefully getting the you know getting one of America's greatest public municipal golf courses uh, back to its, its stature as maybe the best in the, in the country and, and one of the best in the world. Thank you so much. Uh, it's, it's our pleasure, and uh, we've, we've uh, really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you, Andy. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you. 